A reading from Exodus 33, 1 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off in the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please Show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of the Lord. Amen. Friends, let's. Pray together. Father in heaven, Jesus uh, prayed to you just before he went to his suffering. And as he prayed to you, he prayed for his disciples. 
and ask that you would sanctify them, that you would keep them in the truth of your word. And Father, he prayed the same thing for, for us, for those who believe through the witness of the apostles. Um, and that's Emmanuel. So uh, thank you that Jesus prayed for Emmanuel for us right now, 2,000 years ago. Um, will you sanctify us in the truth? Meaning, will you grant us uh, so to hear your word um, that we would trust in Christ above all? And that you would be our highest and our deepest treasure. That in gaining you, we would know ourselves to have everything that will really matter for forever. Will you, will you impart that? that? That takes a miracle uh, to persuade hearts like ours that that is true. But it is true. And so we need that miracle to bring us into alignment with your truth. Your word is truth. Make that plain to our souls now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, um, please look at that Exodus reading. That's where we're going to camp today. Now, let me try to set up the importance of this reading, um, because my guess is that um, a lot of us probably aren't familiar with this reading. It's not a really, really popular one, but uh, even if it's not the most popular uh, reading from the book of Exodus, it's crucially important. This reading, Emmanuel, tells us some just absolutely enormous things. For instance, uh, this reading tells us that God gives us a lot of things. Now, hopefully that's not a big surprise. God, the God of the Bible, if you spend any time reading the Bible, you'll find out that the God that presents himself in the Bible is a various, very generous God. God like doles out gifts all the time. However, this reading tells us that there's this one thing that God gives. There's this one thing that God wants to give. And this one thing that God gives and this one thing that God wants to give, this one thing is more important than anything else that God can possibly give us. In fact, this one thing, this one gift that God gives outweighs everything else that God might give us and outweighs everything else that we could achieve in life or that we could possibly receive in life. And this reading tells us what that one most important gift is that God has to give us. So that's important. And... In telling us about this one gift that God wants to give us that outweighs everything else that we could possibly receive, in telling us about this one gift that God wants to give us, this reading also clarifies the central purpose and pursuit of our lives, which that's a big deal, right? Here's, here's, here's why I say that. So if it's true that God wants to give us this one particular gift that outweighs everything else, if, it's, if that's true, then it makes sense that pursuing this gift and receiving this gift and obtaining this gift has to be the highest priority of our lives. So this reading is important because we find out what God's best gift is. And we find out that that single gift needs to chart the deepest pursuit of our lives. So it tells us what God's best gift is. It tells us the purpose of our individual lives, but it also tells us the purpose of our church. Um, so. Here we are, Emmanuel. Um, we're a church. We want to do lots of things, right? Um, we uh, we get to, in the next few months, we get to um, kind of relaunch our church. Uh, we want to find a place where we can all physically gather together. Uh, we want to not just do that. We want to continue serving our city well, and we want to get better at it. We want to be a great community for each other. We want to do lots of things. We want to be lots of things as a church. But underneath all of that, 
we must be a church that pursues this one thing this passage emphasizes. So this is an important story. Um, because if you're a Christian, then then this reading is going to ask you to recalibrate your life to pursue that one gift, which is God's best gift. And if you're not a Christian, or if you're thinking about it, or you're not sure you're a Christian, then this reading is important because this reading is going to clarify what it is that God is offering, what God's big offer is to you. And it'll give us uh, our priority as a church. So all that to say, here's it's an important reading. And here's what I want to show you. Emmanuel, God's best gift is always himself. And therefore, we must refuse to be satisfied with anything less than him. Now, let me explain what I mean. So get into the story. Um, we pick up the story today, and God and Israel are in the middle of a relational Chernobyl. Like, you remember Chernobyl? Um, most of us probably weren't even alive yet. But uh, mid-80s, uh, Soviet nuclear plant, it melted down. Worst nuclear disaster, I think, in history, something like that. That's what's happening to the relationship between God and Israel in this reading. So, Which is odd because 40 days before this, God and Israel, they had put a ring on it. Um they hadn't literally, literally gotten married, but God and Israel had formally entered a covenant with each other. Now, do you remember a covenant? A covenant is a committed relationship that's more binding than a friendship and more intimate than a contract. And so God and Israel had formally become family, a little bit like a wedding, maybe more like an adoption. But in any event, they were family. They had put a ring on it 40 days before this reading. But then 40 days after their covenant, uh, betrayal, total betrayal. So what happened is uh, Israel had gotten impatient. God was taking too long. And therefore Israel cheated on God. They made a shiny new little God. They made a golden calf. You've probably heard that story. We talked about it a few weeks ago. They made a golden calf and they probably modeled this golden calf as a sculpture that they were started worshiping. They modeled this golden calf on an Egyptian God called Apis. So in some ways they were going back to the gods of Egypt. However, they were remarketing the gods of Egypt. So they didn't call this golden calf that they made. They didn't call it the Egyptian God, God Apis. What they called it was the Lord. They called this golden calf the Lord who had brought them up out of Egypt. So they were trying to say that they're worshiping the Lord, but they're worshiping this other God at the same time. It, it was a little bit like they were saying, um, God, yeah, maybe we're kind of cheating on you, but I promise we were thinking about you the whole time. It doesn't work. It, it was relational Chernobyl, complete betrayal. And so the question in our reading is, what in the world is God going to do about this? I mean, because is he just going to divorce his people? Because he has cause, right? He like caught them in the act. Is that what he's going to do? Well, here's the thing. The God of the Bible is a God who keeps his promises. He keeps his promises come what may. God, the God in the, of the Bible is a God who takes promises just extremely Seriously, it's one of the standout characteristics of the God of the Bible. He is faithful to his promises, and he's faithful to his promises even when his people are not. Pause, by the way. 
Did you hear that? God is faithful to his promises, even when his people are not. It's important that we know that. This is a little bit of an aside. Um, I've got a feeling that there's some of us who have a sneaking subtle suspicion that your unfaithfulness to God has canceled God's faithfulness to you. I just want to tell you that that's not true. Your unfaithfulness and my unfaithfulness to God does not cancel God's faithfulness to you. And today, what that means, that should encourage you because that means that God is calling you back to himself. That was an aside. Let's get back to the story. So God and Israel, their relationship is just shattered. But on the other hand, God wants to keep his promises. So instead of a, a complete divorce, uh, God and Israel, they, they basically separate. So Israel is encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. And verse seven, Moses pitches a tent for the Lord outside the camp. That's where God's going to be. God has separated himself from Israel. Okay, so that's the situation. It's super tense. But now look at verse one. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing, literally oozing with milk and honey. Now, stop there. See, here's the weird thing. The weird thing is that this is a really good deal. Can you see that? Do you remember um, God previously had committed to rescue Israel from their enslavement in Egypt and then to give them a new home? Um, and God, God's plan was to give them political freedom and economic prosperity. Now, what's not to like, right? But then Israel cheats on God. Israel totally defaults on their end of the bargain. But nevertheless, here, God promises, despite their betrayal, God promises, he says, listen, I'm still going to keep my promises to you. I'm still going to give you political freedom, economic prosperity, and oh, by the way, I'll throw in national security too. Like, what's not to like on this deal? Like this, as separation agreements go, this is a good, good deal. Israel is landing squarely on their feet in this relational Chernobyl moment. Can you see that? However, look back at verse three, the second part of verse three. The Lord says, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Verse four, when the people heard this, note the term, this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his garments. This is a crucial moment. I want you to imagine uh, God and Israel uh, sitting across a table negotiating their separation agreement. And God's sitting on one side of the table and he grabs a piece of paper and he writes down uh, his offer. And, and, and the offer is, uh, he, he says, I'm going to give you political freedom, economic prosperity, and national security. That's what I'm going to do. And he, and he folds up the piece of paper with that offer in it, and he puts it in an envelope, and he slides it across the table to Israel. And Israel opens up the envelope, unfolds the paper, reads the offer, folds it back up, 
puts it back in the envelope. And on the outside of the envelope scribbles the disastrous word and slides it back. And Israel says, no, that's not what we want. You know, my question is why? Well, just think about this for a second. Clearly, they should take this deal, right? This is way more than they deserve. This is way more than they can hope for. I mean, economic prosperity, political freedom, national security, what's not to like? Why do they call it the disastrous word? Where, where's the disaster? Can you see the question? And Emmanuel, I hope with all of my heart that you'll be able to listen and understand this, the answer to this question. Where, where, where is the disaster in this? And the disaster is the absence of God. And that's always the disaster. The absence of God is the disaster underneath all the disasters that could possibly threaten your soul. And Emmanuel, if the absence of God does not feel like that great of a disaster, then it means that we have hardly begun to truly grasp who God is at all. And on the other hand, the fact that Israel knows that God's absence is a disaster, despite all the prosperity that they might enjoy, the, the fact that they look at the, this deal and they realize it is a disastrous word, it is a sign that maybe for the first time they're starting to grasp something of God's value. And it's interesting that they begin to grasp God's value in the midst of their moral disaster. Now, Emmanuel, um, think of it this way. God gives us many gifts, right? Do you, is, that, is that clear? So if that's not clear, that God gives many gifts. Just breathe for a second. Everybody breathe, breathe. In. Feels good, doesn't it? Um, once upon a time, you took your first breath. And you didn't earn that first breath. That was given to you. And one day, you will breathe your last breath. And in between, every breath you take is a gift from God. Which is to say, everything in your life is a gift from God. And even if right now you're like, I don't even believe in God, even if that's true, are there not moments in the quiet stillness when you want to thank something for the privilege of being alive? Aren't there moments like that? Friends, God gives us many, many gifts, many gifts. He gives us education and learning. He gives us families. He gives us love. He gives us ambitions. He gives us jobs that demand our very best. He gives art. He gives the joy of creating. He gives the natural world, the, the natural world that is so full of mysteries that the more we study it, the more science confirms that our world is enchanted with beauty. God gives us many gifts. But all of those gifts have a purpose. And all of those gifts are meant to point us to the greater gift. And the greater gift that God always from the beginning has wanted to give us is himself. God's best gift is always himself. And that explains the disastrous word. Because if we gain everything, and if Israel gains everything, but they miss God, then everything they have will ultimately crumble and fall, and they will be left with nothing that really matters for forever. 
they will end up with an eternal disaster. Now, Jesus said it this way. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world, but then forfeit their soul? In this moment for Israel, this was their moment when they could have gained the whole world. Political freedom, economic prosperity, national security, they could have had it all and they would have lost their soul. And in this moment of clarity, they could see that it would profit them nothing. And so, Emmanuel, I, what my prayer is, is that the Lord will sear upon our souls the danger of the disastrous word because it's easy to think it's a good deal. Now, let me turn this around just a little bit. So it's very easy. Stay with me here, okay? It's very easy to love God's gift more than we love God himself. Did you follow that? Or put differently, it's easy, possible to follow Jesus at some level because we calculate that following him is going to benefit us somehow. And what we really want are the benefits we expect from Jesus. But we do that in a way, it's possible to do that in a way that we never really come to love Jesus for who he is in himself. We want his gifts, but we don't want him. Like, do, do you love God? Let me say it this way. Do you love God? Or do you mainly just love the stuff you get from him? Now, that's a hard question to answer, right? And, and part of it is that the part of the reason it's hard is because our love for God is all tangled up in thanksgiving for what he gives us. And that's right, because we, we love a generous God. But despite that, we must ask ourselves, are we seeking God or are we just seeking his stuff? Are we seeking a father in who, to, to whom we are to be bound in a covenant of love forever and that that is the animating center of our reality or are we relating to God as a big genie and what we really love is the fact that we get three wishes or we think we do. You see it? See, there's times where we get really angry with God. I, hope, I don't know if you can identify with this, but I think some of us can. There are times where we get really angry with God because God is not given us what we think we we should be getting from him. It's like, God, I've done everything, man. I have done everything and you are not coming through for me. You have not given me the things that I want so that our disappointment with life and all of us experience disappointment with life, our disappointment with life becomes anger towards God because we're, God's not giving us what we want from him. And that can be an indication possibly that we're loving what we expect to get from God. But we're somehow forgetting God himself. Or then there's other times where we hold back from fully surrendering to God because we're sort of waiting to, to see whether or not following him really pays off. We're kind of hedging our bets a little bit. Is this going to pay off? Now, friends, the word of God says to us today, mean, that's just not how it works. Because God holds out a gift that is bigger than our capacity to desire it. And if God sometimes withholds something that we want, nevertheless, he is still offering us something that is better. He is offering you and me. He is offering us himself. And if we wait to surrender to him fully to see whether or not it pays off, then the risk is that we are 
we risk missing the central purpose of our lives because we were all of us made for God and no smaller gift will do. But now go back to the passage and, and, and in the passage, pay attention to Moses because Moses in this reading is the only one who is exempt from the disastrous word because he can go out of the camp and go over and meet with God. In fact, he can meet to God face to face, verse 11, which is amazing. In verse 12, Moses goes into the tent, talks to God, and it gets really, really candid. So Moses, verse 12, says to the Lord, see, and he's clearly kind of exasperated. He said, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name and you have found favor in my sight. Now, pause. Stay with me. Mark that last bit. Moses knows that out of all of Israel, he's the only one who has a real intimate relationship with God. Moses knows God. He knows God face to face, verse 11. In other words, God's favor is upon Moses. But now watch what Moses does with that favor. He leverages his personal favor with the, with the Lord for the benefit of Israel who has betrayed God. So first, Moses says, God, if I found favor, then your presence needs to go with me. And God agrees with that. Verse 14, God says, yes, my presence, Moses, will go with you. But it will go specifically with you, Moses. God is not, in verse 11, committing to go with the whole nation. So Moses comes back at the Lord and says, all right, no, 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 no. We got to go further. Verse 15, Moses says, um, if your presence will not go with me, then don't bring us up from here. Note the pronouns from individual to corporate. Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? Now, pay attention to the pronouns. Moses, in negotiating with God or praying, uh, shifts from God, your presence needs to go with me, to God, your presence needs to go with us. Or again, God's, uh, God, it's as if Moses says, God, if I have found favor with you individually, then please share that favor with Israel corporately. If I have access to you individually, God, then I want to use that access so that all Israel has access to you corporately. Now, Emmanuel, this is called mediation. And it is the only way that we can avoid the disastrous word. Israel had forfeited intimacy with God, but Moses had not. And Moses took his favor with God and used it so that all Israel could regain the intimacy they had traded away. And that's, Emmanuel, what Jesus does for us. Only much, much more. Because Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. And Jesus is the only person who never forfeited intimacy with God. Jesus enjoys perfect, limitless intimacy with God as his father. Moses, you, you notice, um, can't see at the end of our passage, can't see all of God. But Jesus can see all of God. Jesus knows all of God. And what Jesus does is this. Imagine Jesus speaking with his father. As if Jesus says, Father, are you pleased with me? And God the Father says, Jesus, yes, you are my son, my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. 
So Jesus responds, then father, if you are pleased with me, then I want you to be equally pleased with everyone who trusts in me. As if Jesus says, yes, Father, they don't deserve you. Yes, they, they loved your gifts more than they've loved you. Yes, they pre preferred what you've made over the one who made it. Yes, they deserve the disastrous word, Father. It's as if Jesus says, but Father, I took the disastrous word upon myself. When I died upon the cross, I was shut out of your presence. I experienced your absence. I received the disastrous word with the purpose and the aim so that they would never have to. So it's as if Jesus says, Father, be pleased with them, not because they deserve it, but because I do. And then having heard Jesus's prayer, the father responds, yes, my son, of course, I will do what you've asked. For I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And it's as if the father says to Jesus, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, you and I decided that I would show mercy upon all who trust in you. So yes, my son, yes, with all of my heart, I will be pleased with those who trust in you just as much as I am pleased with you yourself. Emmanuel, that is the glorious word. The glorious word says that the disastrous word need not be the end, but rather through Jesus Christ, God the Father gives himself even to those who have betrayed him. God's best gift is always himself. And the whole story of creation and redemption is a long way of saying how that becomes true. So how then shall we respond? Two things. Take off the ornaments that entangle and seek God's glory above all. First of all, take off the ornaments that entangle. Do you notice um, Israel stops wearing jewelry? Verse six. Why? It's not because jewelry is bad. Um, the problem was their gold had been a gift from God. And they had used those gifts of God, that gold, uh, to make the golden calf. So they had preferred God's gifts over God himself. And therefore, taking off their gold and their ornaments and their jewelry was a sign that they were renouncing their sin and they were preferring God above all. And we get to do that too. Not with jewelry, but rather, let me ask you this. Which of God's gifts are we tempted to love more than God? Now, whatever that is, it'll be different for each of us. Whatever that is, we need to lay it down and surrender. And it may be, it, it will be hard to do that. It may feel like you're like soul crushing to do that, but God is kind. He's not cruel. He's kind. God demands that we surrender those things, even those things which we love most that aren't him. He demands that we surrender them, not because he's cruel, but because he's kind. And he wants to give us something that is beyond our capacity to desire it. He wants to give us himself, so lay it down. Surrender the ornaments, whatever they may be. They may be shiny. They may be pretty. They may be brilliant. But in their place, God wants to give you his glory. Lay them down. Jesus laid down his life for you. Doesn't it make sense to lay everything down for him? Lay down the ornaments that entangle. But then secondly, seek God's glory above all. Verse 18, Moses seeks God's glory. And he was actually asking for something that would kill him. Like if he saw all of God, it would kill him. And so God's like, no, I'm not going to kill you, but I'll let you see a lot of me. But you got to love Moses' nerve. The guy's got nerve. We need that nerve. 
Moses is never fully satisfied with how much he knows God. There's always more to know. There's always more of God to love. And so Moses is always saying, no, I don't want to be complacent with how much I know of God now. I want to go further. I want to go further. So Emmanuel, let's repent of our complacency in our walk with God. We have been given a gift too glorious and too beautiful to just kind of sit around with it. We need to become a people who are greedily ambitious to know God more than we do right now. Emmanuel, Jesus has replaced the disastrous word with the glorious word. Surrender yourself fully to him and spend the rest of our lives surrendering in pursuit of the glory that he purchased for us. God's best gift is always himself. Let's lay, lay down everything that entangles us and pursue that best gift with everything in us for forever. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.